Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, here we are with chapter 12, seminar 16. Check out the opening sentences of Lacan's lecture on this 26th of February, 1969. You have been good enough to follow me up to the present along narrow paths, and I think that for a number of you, the line I am taking seems to pose the question of its origin and its sense. In other words, it may easily happen that you no longer know very well where we are. Well, I can tell you where we are. We're halfway through seminar 16 or thereabouts, and Lacan is here taking a pause and acknowledging that a lot that's happened up to this point may leave his audience wondering, where the hell are you going? Where the hell are we now? And as he suggests a little later here is, and how did we get here? He makes this move a few lines down from what we were just reading. He goes on to say he's going to tell us about the title of this seminar, but then he suggests that the way that we strike upon our path is to note that the start is illuminated by retroaction. It's from the present moment here in the middle of seminar 16 that we can kind of look back at the previous 11 chapters and figure out what the heck we've been up to. At least that's what Lacan is suggesting here in the opening page of chapter 12. So let's follow his lead. Let's see what we can do. We know where this seminar starts, claiming that the essence of psychoanalytic theory is a discourse without words. We messed with that a lot in our opening lectures. Here, we have been scaling up several diagrams, and we've moved from this broad axiom of psychoanalytic theory being a discourse without words to a hypothesis. The hypothesis being, as you know, that the signifier is what represents the subject to or for another signifier. Now, this hypothesis in turn provided us with a diagram. S1 leading to S2 and representing a subject. You know the one I'm talking about. There's the S1 with an arrow pointed to S2, and then underneath the S1 is the barred subject. S1 is the signifier that represents the barred subject to another signifier. And at some basic level, that's what S2 is. It is simply an other signifier. Now, what did we do with this? We took this topology of the subject, and we plugged it into an iterative diagram that extends it such that S1 over barred subject leading to S2 becomes itself the basis for a new S2, an encompassing S2 that would then have a new S1 pointing to it and a barred subject underneath. You know the diagram I'm talking about. We started with Lacan's concentric circles in an earlier chapter and scaled it out using rectangulations of 
the topology of the subject, such that you have one containing the other. You might even think of these as nested topologies. But the point we were making then and the point we're making now is that this depicts the operational logic of the big other. And it further shows why that logic is always incomplete. Why the big other's aim of absolute containment is always unfulfilled. In other words, why the big other is always the barred other. And that's important here. The big other does not exist. The barred other, however, exists all too well for too many folks. Now, what we did after that was we took that iterative extending diagram and we started zeroing in on each of the concepts at play there. We talked about S2, we talked about the barred subject, we talked about little a as a structural indexical phenomenon in here. We talked about the barred other, the barred other whose operational logic is depicted in that iterative diagram that we drew, the second major diagram in this series. And then of course, we have been focusing on S1. S1 has occupied a lot of our attention, and for good reason. S1 is a hinge. It's a turning point, <clears throat> a diversely swinging door, you've heard me describe it as, in the topology of the subject. The S1 that represents a subject to another signifier, that S1 can be variously functioning as a unary trait, which is itself a composite element comprised of two moments, as we've been discussing. It can also, however, function as a master signifier, and that's kind of where we're headed now. But in chapter 12, Lacan invites us to add a little bit more to this and invites us to hold both of these functions in mind. And so that's what we're going to see what we can, what we can make of here. Um, now, let's focus on some typical understandings of the unary trait and the master signifier by way of review. The unary trait usually marks a tracing of sorts from the big other to an avatar of the big other, a parent, an authority figure, to a single characteristic of that avatar, a nod, a wink, a thumbs up, some sort of a behavior to the subject who would internalize or interject that singular trait, that unary trait, that single stroke. And it would internalize this in a, in a process that we would call like symbolic identification. This is an identificatory process. It's also an introjective process. Um, it's where a singular phenomenon figured in the form of a, an avatar of the big other gets internalized and becomes part and parcel of one's personal or individual identity. The unary trait props up conditions one's individual personal sense of self. Now the master signifier, when S1 is a master signifier, what we know about this is that master signifiers don't result in individual identities as much as collective identities. They condition collectivizations of events and entities. They found group identities, in other words. Master signifiers allow for oneifications, universalizations, and they also tend to be unnameable, 
unidentifiable, and absensical, I would say. Not nonsensical, I would say absensical. These are some of the basic ways that we often talk about the unary trait and the master signifier. Here are some things that we have added to these basic understandings. The unary trait is not just a single stroke. It is a composite set, a two-part set at least, <clears throat> that has two elements in it, one of which signals prohibition. Here's the no of the father. Another of which signals positionality, positioning one in the symbolic. So what you see is the unary trait has two functions. One function is to prohibit the subject by the symbolic, and the other is to position the subject in the symbolic. So we had prohibition and positionality, suppression and sublimation. We also had subjection and subjectivization. These are just two of the columns here that we worked out, again, by way of review. But this is the new addition, is to read the unary trait as itself a composite phenomenon. And that's different. The master signifier has also undergone some changes. It doesn't just condition, but it also prevents and obstructs the oneification towards which the big other, as barred other, veers. And thus, it's part and parcel of what bars the other, what marks it as lacking. That the master signifier also originates, if we could say that, in the barred subject is substantial here. We had examples of slang, nicknames, subcultural and countercultural neologisms and the like. We'll come back to that and maybe offer a few more examples here in a few. But for now, this raises a question for us about the master signifier. If the master signifier is unnameable, unidentifiable, nonsensical, and it's also what bars the other as a result, remaining radically ulterior to and subtracted from the big other's totalizing effort, could we say that the discourse of the barred subject when it yields master signifiers, is a discourse without words, in the sense that these words uttered as master signifiers from the barred subject would not be recognized or registered by the big other. It's a question, an open question at this point. We'll see where we go with it. And this, of course, is not our only key question at this point. Here are a couple more. What exactly is the status of the barred subject vis-a-vis -vis the barred other? So far, the bumper sticker we've been working on is, I am what the barred other lacks, but it is not what I lack. And that non-reciprocal superimposition of lack is a relevant one. It's a useful one for us to hold in mind. I am what the barred other lacks. I, as a barred subject, is what the barred other lacks. But what I lack is not a barred other. In fact, I'm surrounded by barred others day in and day out. <clears throat> That's the nature of being human. Here's another question. To what extent does the position of the barred subject in the topology of the subject with which we're working point to the absolute subject of enjoyment, 
as Lacan refers to it in chapter 9, around page 4, I believe. Now, I'm not entirely convinced that these two things are going to sync up, but he raises it as a question. He invites us to wonder about this. One of the phrases he uses here that might be relevant for this question is to talk about the one before the one. It's kind of a confusing moment in these middle chapters. When he talks about the one before the one, what exactly is he after here? Two different ones. There is the one of jouissance, the one of enjoyment, that is prohibited. And this could be the jouissance one that you may have heard Jacques-Alain Miller talk about. This is an individualized, hyper-embodied, auto-erotic, singularly actualized form of jouissance, getting back to the basic understanding that we have of enjoyment, which is it's always particular, it's always private, and it's always your own. I can help you enjoy, but I can't enjoy for you, and vice versa. You can be involved in the production of my enjoyment, but only I am the one who gets to enjoy. It very much connects Lacan to existential traditions, which can be summed up pretty quickly around whether someone can take a bath for you. The other one, though, the one after the one here, this would be the oneness of the big other, the oneness that the big other seeks, the oneification as an operational aim of the big other. Here, it would not be about singularity, in the sense of jouissance one, but it would be about collectivity, a universalization, remembering what we mean by unus here. So the one before the one would not be about oneness, but about singularity at the level of one singular body. And this might suggest that we're on the path to the absolute subject of enjoyment. The one after the one, this would be the one that the big other seeks, that the barred other always is just shy of. Here, it wouldn't be about a singular embodied identity, but a collective, and I would even say virtual, identification. Here's another question to add to our list here. How exactly does repetition fit in here? You've heard me say it before, repetition is a key concept for Lacan here in the mid-late 60s, and it pops up again here in chapter 12, as we're going to see in a moment. How exactly does repetition participate in the topology of the subject that we're working with in seminar 16? Now, obviously, the iterative topology of the subject that we've drawn where each topology becomes a new S2 in a new version of the same topology, which in turn becomes an S2 in a new version of the same topology, you can see an infinite repetitive cycle being played out there. You'll also note in the first diagram that we developed in this series, the circular diagram. In the lower left-hand part of that, you see repetition, where surplus jouissance is marked as a repetition of the imaginary relation we have with the phallus, with an original supply. So supply and surplus are linked up by way of repetition. And that's really what that first diagram is demonstrating, is that as you transition from one element to the next, you see a different function, a different operation occurring. And that connection between surplus jouissance and 
the phallus is, is important here because it is also one marked by repetition. What the object of surplus jouissance repeats, if you will, is an imaginary relation to objects not unlike that which we experienced in pre-edible, pre-linguistic imaginary triangles. But again, here we are, looking at this topology of the subject and wondering yet again, is there another way that repetition might factor in to some of the work that we're doing? And I think the answer is yes. Check out how Lacan sets us up for this. Chapter 12, page 11. <clears throat> and you'll note there's some good stuff in the middle of this chapter 12. We don't need to talk much about it. It's stuff that we've already discussed in many ways. But it's interesting to note what Lacan is doing here. So on page 9, he basically takes on idealism and shows that psychoanalysis is different because it does not place thought in some internal cognitive noumenal circuit at the level of the individual, something properly psychological, the way that Kant and the idealist tradition after him effectively did. It's no coincidence that Kant is coming up here on page nine. It's just psychoanalysis is doing something different. It's not psychological in an idealist fashion, but instead sociological. And it's a properly, in fact, sociolinguistic enterprise, not about the individual internalization of thought, but instead the way that thought is distributed across a differential system, a differential system of signifiers that make subjects possible, that make interiors possible, that condition the very thinking subjects that German idealism would take as foundational. What idealists understand as foundations, in other words, Lacan is going to realize as effects. They're effect structures. Anyway, moving on. Page 10, he's doing stuff with symptoms and signifiers. Terrific. He's also working in set theory. And anytime Lacan makes a shift to set theory, rest assured he's going to trot out some big ideas, some key ideas. For him, set theory is really a touch point in mathematical thought. And that's exactly what he's working here. He's using set theory very glancingly to talk about in a mathematical way the differential system of signifiers known as language, that same differential system that produces the subject thinking and otherwise. On page 11, he hits us with what is now a very familiar theme. The big other does not exist. He talks about, in the middle of the page, a configuration of signifiers, which in no way signifies that the entire configuration, that the universe thus constituted, can be totalized. So you can have a differential system, a configuration of signifiers, but this does not in any way indicate that this configuration can be universalized, can be made into a universe, contained, in other words, or as he puts it here, totalized. What he's saying here is, the same thing he's been saying about knowledge, is that it is effectively incomplete and because it's incomplete, also effective. But it can never be whole. There is no such thing as omniscience and thus the big other is designed to fail. The big other doesn't exist, but the barred other does in its pursuit of totality, 
a um, fruitless pursuit. In fact, Lacan wants to add here quite the contrary to this totalization. It leaves outside the field as not being able to situate as one of its parts, but only articulated as an element in reference to others, the sets thus articulated. So there's always something that's being left out from this totalizing effort. And this has been one of the major topics that we've been working on here. Remember, the spirit of this, the spirit of our turn in chapter 12, is to take stock and kind of look back, anticipate where we're going, and try and understand where the hell we are. That's how he opens this, and that's in the spirit that we're operating. On page 11 of chapter 12, we also get something new, though. And that's why I call your attention to this page. Last paragraph on page 11. This minimal logical structure... Now remember, the minimal logical structure of language that Lacan has in mind is an S1 and an S2 a signifier and another signifier. The minimum signifiers required to have the differential systematics known as language are two. You have to have at least two. Now, of course, you're going to have many, 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 many Googleplex more, but you have to have at least two. S2 is fundamentally a binary signifier, not because it's bifurcated, as you know, even though it is, <laughs> but because it is it exists as the second of two signifiers that mark a system as differential. <clears throat> so when he says here at the bottom of page 11 that he's looking for the minimal logical structure, he's looking at that S1 and that S2. You have to have at least two entities to have a differential system. Now what we know, and it doesn't even bear repeating here, so I might just leave it out. Oh, never mind. I'll just go ahead and say it one more time. Is that where two or more have gathered, you always have a third. The third is the differential relation between them, what eventually Lacan will go along to call a non-rapport of sorts. Here, though, it's a differential relation that marks a third element in this set comprised of at least two. So what we could accurately, more technically say is that the minimum logical structure is not a binary system with two elements, but a trinary system, if you like that, because there's always the relationship, the differential relationship itself between the two elements that allow them to remain distinct and phenomenologically separate and identifiable as two elements. Now, you've heard me go over this again, so we'll leave it at that. The minimal logical structure here, three elements, we've said, as it is defined by the mechanisms of the unconscious, I have for a long time summarized under the terms of difference and repetition. Now, I hesitated to bring up the virtual earlier because I know a lot of folks who watch this series are also keen on Deleuze. I get about an email a week from somebody asking if we're going to ever do a series on Deleuze. Uh, years ago, yes, we did it. Um, I don't know if that's in our future, even though Deleuze has some great stuff. And Deleuze is important because he figures largely in Lacan's thought at this point. You see, in the 50s, Lacan has a different set of peers. I would argue that here in the 60s, especially the late 60s, the peer that Lacan often has in mind when he's operating is Deleuze. Deleuze comes up explicitly in this section. 
Um, and there's some great secondary scholarship on Lacan's relationship to Deleuze and, and, and the times that they got together, one time in particular, apparently. Um, but we'll leave that uh, to, to, the, to the experts on this instead. Uh, my friend Dan Smith has some pretty good stuff on this. You should check it out. But back to that minimal, logical structure here. Under the terms of, here it comes, Deleuzeans, difference in repetition. He says he's been saying for a long time that what he's doing with language can be summarized under the terms of difference and repetition. Nothing else grounds the function of the signifier except its absolute difference. It is only in the way that the other signifiers are different from it that the signifier is sustained. So here's that important element about the differential production of meaning in the field known as language. And just recall the example again of looking up a word in the dictionary. When you look up a word in a dictionary, you find other words that are different from the word you looked up, but are themselves also integral to understanding the meaning of the word that you looked up. So in order to understand what the word you looked up means, in other words, you have to also understand its differential yet connected relationship with all these other words. And the same thing would happen if you went and looked up those words, the words that were in the definition of the original term that you looked up. You'd find other different words. And that whole differential system, it's a system of absolute difference, Lacan says. It's the only way that one signifier can be maintained in its meaning, namely in differential relation to another. And now here's the second part of difference and repetition. On the other hand, these signifiers should be and function in a repetitive articulation. And here you might say that we move a little bit away from Deleuze and maybe more into some Derridian insights, perhaps insights that even flowed from uh, Lacan's work. I'm sure Lacan would have us think that. Language here, in other words, for Lacan, and this is going to become important as we think about the topology of the subject, is a differential system whose constitutive elements, whether they're phonemes, words, depend on repeated usage. And that's important here. The meaning of the signifiers that exist in differential relationships in language depends on their iterative usage. These signifiers have to be repeated and repeatable in order for them to sustain the meaning. Meaning is like momentum. And as soon as a signifier stops being used and repeated, like the language itself that it occupies, it goes dead. But that repetition is really important here. Meaning exists in a differential system, but it's only sustained iteratively. And so Lacan wants to have difference and repetition as foundational concepts in his thinking. Now, how this plays out at the level of the latest diagram that we've been developing is where we're going to turn next. So the question then arises, where does repetition fit and where does difference fit on this diagram that we've been working with? I think repetition belongs up here. Now, this is a very traditional Lacanian place to put it, too. Repetition for Lacan is always retroactive 
because there's a second moment that retroactively designates a precursor as its lost origin. And doesn't just designate it, but as we've seen, also taints it, marks it, and so forth. It's a lost origin because as it was at the time is no longer when repeated at a later date. Now repetition, we know also from Kierkegaard forward, is impossible. It's always repetition with a difference. But here there's an indexical relationship between a second moment and a previous moment that that second moment retroactively names as its origin, which is not the same as saying S1 is the genesis, but instead that it is an original moment, original in the sense that it can only be understood backward from a latter moment. Repetition fits rather cleanly up here. And if we were going to keep playing with this, you can imagine where I'm going to put difference. There you have it. So difference and repetition in what Lacan claims is his basic understanding of language is going to fit in our diagram about like this. Now let's start with the repetition part. <clears throat> Assume you have a big other here. You can play like it's full even though we know it's always lacking. But the big other here could be like a naming tradition, like a naming practice in one's family. And think traditional naming practices here, like the naming traditions in Sicily, for instance. These would be all of those traditions, the virtual, sometimes unwritten codes of naming. Now here you've got a particular family. S2 is a subset of the big other. Here's a particular family, unified by a surname, a last name of sorts, but also with very particular names plugged in to the code of, I don't know, Sicilian naming practices. So it could be as simple as um, the couple's first son is named after the paternal grandfather. And then the couple's second son would be named after the maternal grandfather. Assuming some heteronormativity here, we're thinking traditional naming practices, right? Um, and you could go on with this. The first daughter would be named after the paternal grandmother of the child. And the second daughter would be named after the maternal grandmother of the child. And then later children subsequent to these four, because let's think traditionally here, uh, you could have great grandparents invoked and names passed down. You could have aunts, you could have uncles. Hell, you could even have saints, a traditional saint that someone would have prayed to around a kid with an issue or something like this. And pow, suddenly you've got children named after that saint. These are repetitive movements. There's the unwritten code, the traditions of naming that get reinscribed or reiterated at the level of a particular family in that tradition, a subset of that tradition. And then check this out. S1 could be the first name of the first son born into this family. Now let's say that the father's father was named Anthony. Here, Anthony would come down and be the S1, the first name, that would be used to designate the newborn child. So that's one way to read this, from Bard A to S2 to S1 to Bard subject, 
is a traditional move from virtual law and normative code to a subset of the society in which that code thrives here, a particular family, to a particular name within that family as S1, and down to a barred subject, which is the body that would be named in that traditional way. Now, think about it this way. S2 is an avatar or a subset of the barred other, of the big other, who exists in a kind of virtual state. This could be the family, but it could also be the parent. It could be any authority figure as well. It could be a cop. It could be a lawyer. Think about that. Here is the lawyer or the body of law or the, the law firm that is a subset of this broader abstract category known as, I don't know, California civil law. And then you would have one particular law that someone might find themselves wrapped up with, bound up with. So you see this kind of process of reduction and representation, all of which is captured under what Lacan means here by repetition. S2 is a repetition of the barred other. S1 is a repetition of some part of S2, and so on. This repetitive cycle would also be worth noting if you had a primary caregiver or a parent in the position of S2, because guess what? they would have undergone the exact same naming practice. So the father of Anthony, his name could be Joseph or something like this, which could in turn be traced back to the same naming tradition. You see, S2 as an avatar of the big other, an embodiment, if you will, whether it's a family or a family member or an authority figure, this would have been someone who would have gone through the exact same process we're describing here. In other words, they're a barred subject that received an S1 at some point and is now part of the subset of the big other known as S2 that's redoing, repeating that naming practice. Now, we can go on working through examples, but the point is that you might have an intergenerational repetition at the level of a naming practice. A naming tradition and this would be the very thing that allows that tradition to thrive the tradition operates because it is iterative because it is repeatable the norms and the codes get embodied in families passed down to individuals who then become the grown-ups in the family who have the children and pass down the same thing so you might even see the cycle working from s2 to s1 and then from s1 back to s2 that'd be a very traditional Lacanian approach to this, in line with some of the work Lacan is doing in the subversion of the subject essay. Not a bad way for us to get going here on the topic. The issue, though, of difference is where things get a little tricky. And to keep things as clean as possible, repetition is going to link up here with S1 as unretrait. just so you know that we haven't strayed too far from what we're up to here. Difference is going to link up with S1 as master signifier. So if you follow the green arrow here from barred other to S2 to S1 to barred subject, this is where S1 is going to serve as a unary trait. Some single characteristic of, in this case, a name a naming tradition embodied in a specific family name. 
that would then get passed down to the individual. It's a simple example, but a useful one for our purposes. And the yellow arrow from the barred subject to S1 to S2 back to the barred other, you see difference at work, and here S1 is a master signifier. So consider with our example how this might play out. Let's say you've got your named subject. Here's Anthony, this, this barred S down here. Anthony grows up, he gets to be a teenager, whatever the age may be, and he decides, you know what? Don't call me Anthony. My new name, my nickname, all my friends, dad, everyone doesn't call me Anthony, they call me Tone. Here at the level of Tone, T-O-N-E, short for Anthony. Now you can imagine in a traditional Sicilian family, this might not go over very well. What a desecration to your grandfather's name, Anthony. I gave you that name because your grandfather, Anthony, was X, Y, and Z. And here you are defecating on his name by shifting it to tone. Tone isn't even a name. Tone is a musical variable, the parent might say. Here, tone is something radically ulterior, subtracted from and unrecognized by the S2 that is the naming tradition, the family name that includes Anthony and the maternal grandfather's name and so on and so forth. Tone would be something radically different, absolutely different to the point of being unrecognizable within the system, the discourse of the family known as S2. It wouldn't just be nonsense when Anthony says, call me Tone from now on. The parent might not even be able to hear that. It might provoke a double take. Tone wouldn't just be nonsense relative to S2. First and foremost, it would be absent, absence. It wouldn't just be nonsensical, it would be absensical in the Baduian sense of absence being something that drops out from the disjunctive relation between sense and nonsense. So oftentimes a child who invokes a new name, a nickname that the primary caregiver or the family tradition cannot metabolize, refuses to accept, remains radically outcast. And this doesn't just happen at the level of name, it can occur at the level of gender, it can occur at the level of fashion, it can occur at the level of a simple haircut. Could be enough to get you cast out. Now, that's not the only way this plays out. The radical difference of a nickname could also eventually, maybe even earlier than that, be accepted within the family. And you might even have a situation where at the next family reunion, Anthony shows up and the primary caregiver, Anthony's father, mother, whatever, would say, hey, everybody, this is no longer Anthony. He goes by tone. And you can imagine how this might play out in other identity ways. Anthony is no longer accepting um, of his traditional gender assignment. She now goes by, you could hear a family member kind of clunkily making their way through a recognition of um, a transgender child. Here we're sticking just at the level of the name, but let your imaginations go in terms of today's identity political landscape and how that might play out. Not so much at the level of rejection by S2, but recognition, 
a gradual stumbling recognition. This is how languages work. Meaning is not just sustained because signifiers can be reused. Meaning is sustained because new signifiers pop up. And a living language is a language that can accommodate new signifiers, bringing them in and allowing them to participate in the differential system of meaning making. And that's important here. New inventions, new terms integrated into a living language. This is what makes a language living, not just that people speak it, but that it is open-ended and able to accept difference, new terms in this case, a new name being accepted and integrated into the family to such an extent that we might even imagine a scenario where Anthony, now Tone, grows up, has some children, and then they have some children, and the firstborn son, in other words, Anthony's grandson, would not be named Anthony, but instead Tone. And then you can imagine Tone showing up 13 years later with the nickname or a new name for himself. And then that individual going on to become the grandfather and so forth. This is not a problem from Lacan's point of view. The problem is when we expect the system to be complete, total, and done with. That's why Lacan says it's laughable that you would have an understanding of knowledge that needs to be complete in order to be functional and that anything less than a complete and totalizing discourse or knowledge, in other words, an S2, that is incomplete, would be irrelevant, um, undermining of all law and order and so forth. Lacan just calls bullshit on this. It says, in fact, any knowledge, any system, any language, in other words, any avatar of the big other, only survives insofar and is only operable insofar as it remains open-ended, incomplete, and thus open to different terms, master signifiers that from the standpoint of the barred other are highly disruptive because they can't be accounted for. But if the system is working well, so to speak, you could see an S2 being able to eventually absorb, metabolize, and integrate a master signifier, thereby allowing it to become an S1 as unary trait to be passed down in the case of naming practices. And this is all important for our purposes because it allows us to show exactly where in Lacan's system repetition and difference get played out. All right, let's see if we can be a little more schematic here. Let's be bold. Repetition comes first. Difference comes second. A child is given the name Anthony in the previous example by its parents, by its family. This name Anthony positions them in the family, in society, in Sicilian society, it was our example. Here the S1 in question functions as a unary trait. Now, if we were to map this out, We've had the diagram that we've been working with. There's your barred other. Here's your subset at the level of the family, the S2. Here's your S1, Anthony. And here is the barred subject named in this enterprise. Difference, though, would occur when Anthony insists that his name is now Tone. That's their example here. 
Here, tone transforms S1, reclaims this position, and makes it that of a master signifier. Heretofore, unheard of in the family, unidentifiable, unnamed in the family, in society, and so forth. There may not even be someone in Sicilian society at that time known as tone. This would be um, an activation of language's potential to change and to evolve, but also to be disrupted and queered by an actual embodied subject, a subject that in turn, by queuing up a new signifier, tone, would further threaten the big other's virtual operation, its absolute containment as an effort, as an operation because here tone is a signifier that is not yet counted or recognized by the big other. This would be that element of difference that would come second. Now, if we were to map this out, we could do so by allowing for it to link up with another diagram that we've worked with, our second diagram. This could be an S2. Here, you might find tone. See how we've drawn this? Resonant. Let's keep it consistent. The pink is the naming of Anthony via repetition. And we can go ahead and just write it like that. Here is S1 as unary trait that passes on the name Anthony to this particular subject. The green indications here are that of difference. So I'll write a little diff right there so we know. S1 here is not Anthony. S1 here is a master signifier. Here, tone. And that master signifier is one that stands apart from the entire tradition in which that subject was previously inscribed. And in so doing, allows for yet other parts of that being, that living subject to fall out, further troubling the big other, who now is no longer just accounting for the previous circuit, but now has to account for this one. And you heard us go even further and say that, and actually, this whole thing, if tone is accepted in the family as a new name, when tone becomes a grandfather, that name can in turn be passed down. And so you could see this whole tradition being integrated into an S2 that would then be passed down at the level of tone now accepted to another subject and see how we want to write this so that it resonates with our previous diagram work. And then you could see this in turn getting reabsorbed. So you can kind of superimpose two of the diagrams that we've been working with here to really capture the sense in which repetition and difference work together in Lacan's thought to keep a language of some kind, the big other, if you prefer, the symbolic breathing and alive.
So it's not just that master signifiers are radically disruptive of the big other. There are also opportunities for the big other to further invigorate itself. And what we do with these moments is very important here. But again, S1 becomes the pivot or the hinge for this circuit of repetition and difference. And this can just go on and on because tone as the grandfather now has the S1 passed down to his grandson, let's say. And in this case, the grandson grows up and can repeat the same circuit. So you see this infinite unfolding that comports with the new diagram that we have built, but also with the diagram just before it. And I think that's worth bearing in mind here. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>